number one for tonight. Um, Joanna and I designed this meme last time we went through stuff on marriage, so I just had to print it off and bring it back, bring it back out. But um, so tonight um, we're going to be teaching on sex, and it is absolutely one of the most difficult topics that I have to teach on. On on one hand, it is I want it to be intensely biblical, and because the Bible is so practical, I want to teach you practically on the matter as well. So, but with that teaching practically on this is rather rather challenging and a little bit tricky. So um, there are so many errors that you can fall into uh, when you teach on this sort of topic. Um, first, first error is you can fall into is sort of being like overly graphic and explicit and inappropriate. And this tends to be the, um, the type of teaching that you're going to hear when somebody's recoiling away from a very fundamentalist type background. Um, uh, from what I have heard, though I have not heard the sermons themselves, this would sort of fall into the Mark Driscoll camp, you know, intensely, uh, in, in, uh, intentionally and overtly explicit. And then you have the other hand, which is like, this is biblical, so we're going to teach on it, but it's like a 10,000 foot view, and it's so general that it's not even helpful, um, because we have no idea what it actually means. We never actually talk about what it means. And so um, that's another error. But then I find another uh, third and a fourth pitfall you can fi- fall into. On one hand, it can be like so incredibly somber and serious, and that's good, but then there's no levity to it, right? There's no fun-lovingness and enjoyability to talking about sex. And then on the other hand, you can be so lighthearted and flippant about it that there is no like gravity and seriousness to the intimacy that is being produced. And so I find uh, walking those lines is going to be incredibly difficult. So at this point, I want to share a little bit about the game plan for tonight, and then hopefully we can work through it together and you can and garner your support on how we're going to go through it. So first, we're going we're gonna to start out in 1 Corinthians 7, and we're going to work through um, sort of what I work through scripture to see a biblical view of sex. So we get that bit of sexual theology, if you will. But as we go, I'm going to use it sort of as a springboard to jump off into some more practical application questions. I'm going to be using terms tonight that may sound taboo and you may question in your mind, as I have, if I should even be using them um, from here. Um, there are things that are so private and graphic that should not be said here, and I would be very quick to agree with that. But with that said, my intention is only to address and to bring up the things that I deem are actually necessary for your spiritual edification. And it may not be for everyone, but I, based on the knowledge of this room, I'm trying to pick the things that I think will be helpful for everyone overall. So I'm, I'm not going to be so esoteric that you don't know how to apply it, and hopefully I can address some real topics and some real questions. So... Um, whether the terms I use are taboo to you or completely new, um, I've heard time and time again from people's testimonies of people who struggled with sexual sin that I wish I had heard this taught in the church first. I wish I had heard those actual words used in the church first. I wish I had learned about these things instead of finding out about them from pornography and other sexual sources online. I wish I had heard them from sort of a Christian worldview first and learned how to digest them. And so it is a very heavy load to bear, but I want you to learn about things from a Christian perspective on things first so that you're not roped into sin on accident, okay? That makes sense. I don't want it to be a surprise to you if you were to come across these things. So I will try to have my best, the best balance that I possibly can between appropriateness and directness. 
and I, I know that I'm, I'm towing that line and I, I, I am. And so I'm going to do my best and I hope that you guys will have grace with me as I, I try to work through that. So in terms of the second pair, in terms of levity, um, there are things about that are sex that are deep and somber and serious and important. And there are also things that are it's funny and it's enjoyable and it's it's laugh worthy and so what i've been trying to do what i'm trying to model in how i teach this is taking it seriously and with a smile right there are things in life that you can be very serious about and have a good time talking about you know if, if we didn't do that with theology i don't know what we what we do it with getting a getting a good laugh out of things that are very serious and very important to us so um, talking about sex is serious and seriously fun. And I, I hope that we have the maturity in this room to know how to handle something that is serious um, without entirely giggling over it like eighth graders. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's real and because it's real, it can be funny as well. So I hope that you'll bear with me as I, for those of you who are into Doug Wilson at all, my second, my second paragraph clause is, is ending here at this moment. So, um, so as you open your Bible, yes, I certainly am. Okay. Why? I just couldn't see. It looked like it needed a button pressed. I, I appreciate it. I have two recordings going. Okay. Um, but so as you open your Bible, go ahead and open your Bible to first Corinthians seven. Um, on your way there, um, I want you to know a little bit of a game plan. I'm going to walk through selected parts of this biblical framework. Um, but I have also spent a significant amount of time um, listening to podcasters, and if you know me at all, I've been researching peer-reviewed uh, scientific like sex journals um, in order to look at some data um, about sex as well. So it might be a little bit nerdy for a way to t teach on sex, but it's the best way I know how to prepare. You know, as the scientist within me. Um, but anyway, so um, one of the one of the um, one of the most requested things that I've had is for um, sort of a compiled list of the resources I've been going through. Some of you have asked me, like, "Hey, I'm, you know, heading towards that season of life. Would you be willing to put sort of a list of things together for me?" And so I just wanted to hand around, and you can take a glance within it. Um, this this book's perhaps been one of the most influential on me as we go through. So I'll just hand it to you, and then. Um, this, I'd say this book has been um, more influential than any. Um, and, and some of the topics inside of it are really funny. So I would encourage you to open it and take a look with them. But um, yeah, so when we arrive at 1 Corinthians 7, um, if you take a glance at chapter 6, what you're going to see is that Paul has been talking about sexual immorality. Okay, so just glance at chapter 6 in your own Bible, and what are some of the things that you see just overall in chapter 6? The theme of your body is a temple. Yes, and what are some of the implications from that? Sex after 50. Um, it's blank. You want to explain the joke? No one. No one the eyes of 50 has sex. That's what they're saying. Sex and I doesn't exist. It's like, Just a joke. Goodness, you guys. I've watched nobody open it all the way around. That was awesome. I was waiting to see how many people it would take to open it. Translated into 16 languages. Yeah, like, like, stay close, stay close, stay close. It is authored by Dr. Soslow, if you're... 
All right, so when we arrive at 1 Corinthians 7, um, you see that Paul has, Paul has just been going through all these things that sexual immorality is going to do to you. It's going to, if you have sex with a harlot, basically you're joining Christ to um, a harlot because it is this intimate act where you are um, combining, like you are becoming one. And so Paul is very concerned regarding that connection. Now, chapter 7 through 11. What are the very first words that you see in chapter 7 there? Now for the matters you wrote about. Right. So chapter 7 through 11, Paul stops talking about what he intended to talk about and starts answering the questions that the Corinthians had for him. And one of the very first topics that apparently the Corinthians wanted to know about when they wrote to Paul is questions regarding sex. And so I'm going to try to skip over some of the exegetical concerns, but one of, one of the very interesting facts, and I would encourage you to look into this if you have time, there were a ton, like I think four different types of marriages within Roman culture, and divorce is super rampant, and there's all of this going on, very sexual promis- sexually promiscuous town, Corinth was, and then you have the Jewish faction that's in a church, and for a Jew, if you were unmarried, it was a very serious spiritual offense because you weren't fulfilling the great, com- like the original commandment in their mind. So you have this like tension of like the Romans, and they have all these weird different types of marriages. Then you have the Jewish population who's saying you have to be married, and there's a lot of sexual, uh, you know, like there's a lot of prostitution in the town, etc. So you have a lot of influences at play. And needless to say, there were differing opinions and arguments about it. Um, 1 Corinthians 7.1. Some would even propose that the second half of this verse is a quotation of what Paul had said to the church of Corinth. 1 Corinthians 7.1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So that, that part, some different translations saying it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That is, it is a euphemism for sex, okay? And the, is that ESV? Uh, those translators sort of take away that euphemism and just put in the actual meaning there. Um, But what his point is, like this quote is, is, it's good for people to remain single, right? There is a sense in which singleness is good. As Paul is going to go on later in the chapter to say, if you're not married, you have a lot less to worry about in life. You can do what you want to do and you can focus on that with a little bit more vim and vigor because you don't have to worry about spending time with people and attending to their needs. But I want to pause right here because I, so singleness is good, right? That's like this, the Corinthian church has gotten on this kick where like sex and marriage is like viewed negatively. And I want to pause right here because um, in the American church, I see so many parallels. There's a lot of different views on marriage. There's a lot of different views on sex. There's a lot of sexual um, prom- uh, promiscuousness in our culture. And so how has the church responded? We've responded particularly in the 90s and early 2000s with sort of the love, weights, purity culture type movement. And there are good things out of that movement. I think the emphasis on remaining sexually pure for marriage is fantastic and those sort of things. But in your estimation, and since I think a lot of us grew up with influences from that culture, how would you say that purity culture has at times equated purity with sex is bad? Like purity is sex is bad. I see a lot of heads nodding. Can you elaborate on how you've seen that played out in our community? It's never talked about. And whenever the word is brought up, 
or especially like in a movie, it's bleeped just like any other cuss word. Interesting. I actually have had one person refer to it as the S word uh, when talking to me, which, you know, I, it cracks me up. It's not the first word I would think of, but, um, and other thoughts. I saw a lot of heads nodding. Yes, please. More feedback on this point. Purity culture with sex is bad. For me, it was more along the lines of, there was always a taboo about the word sex, much like what Joshua just hit. Um, but it was more along the lines of like, it was wrong to even like someone sometimes. In mm. my life, even when I was like 12 years old, I thought having a crush was sinful, almost. Okay. And so like, attraction is bad. Mm. Don't, don't read song or song until you're older. I looked at Vicky because we were told that. Yeah. <laughs> we were told that, and so I was like almost afraid to read song or song. Because <laughs> I was like, what, what's in here? <laughs> right, okay. Uh, any other thoughts? Because they make threats sometimes or um, like demeaning comments. Sure. Or really like push the whole shame thing. Yeah. I would say if your parents struggle to communicate with you about sex, one of the co most common causes for that is that they haven't learned how to communicate well together about sex either. If someone has a mastery of sex, um, take your feet off there. It's recording, it'll mess up the recording. That's okay. <laughs> Any vibration goes up. If if you have if you have trouble with communicating with each other about sex, it tends to trickle down to your kids as well. Um, but one of the one of the things is that throughout church history, Paul is always viewed as a sex ascetic, right? Like Paul just hates on sex, right? Because he says singleness is good. But when you read through this passage, I don't think that's at all what you'll find. Um, let's go ahead um, in just a moment and have. Um, First uh, Corinthians seven two read, what I think you'll find instead of instead of Paul you know being really down on sex, what you're going to see him say is sex is good, just a not right now if you're single or not for you if you have the gift of singleness, right? And and for Paul he's like you know there's a lot of good things about being single. Don't hate on single people. You know you get older you start looking at single people and you're like man what's wrong with you like you, you, something must be wrong with them they should have had somebody by now no I mean it's not necessarily the case you know that if you have the gift of singleness that's not necessarily a bad thing but there's definitely a place for sex and for Paul I think he views it more as the norm First Corinthians seven two but since sexual immorality is occurring each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. So basically, yes, singleness is good, but singleness is also really difficult, <laughs> right? I mean, it, I, considering most of you are not married <laughs> and some of you are dating, singleness is difficult. If you file single on like tax forms, it's challenging, right? Um, you know, you want to think you're together, but then you still have to put single on these forms and it's really annoying. But it's very difficult and Paul realizes that. And so if you look, uh, just let's go ahead and read verses uh, six, through, 6 through 11, because Paul says something in verse 2 that sounds very much like a command. He's like, get married, basically. But verses 6 through 11 sort of qualify that. He's not telling everyone they have to get married. Here's what he's saying. Now is a concession, not a command. I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one to an, of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. 
But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So you say singleness is super hard for me. It's so difficult. I, I can barely hold myself together. Here's Paul's admission to you. Ready for this? Get married. It's as simple as that, right? Like if you struggle being single, then you don't have the gift of singleness. But if inside you're like, I really want a relationship, but you know, I just really don't ever have sexual desire, then get be satisfied in a friendship, right? Like that the church should be close enough to meet those needs. But if you don't have sexual desires and you're not burning with passion, as Paul puts it, then don't get married. But if you do have those sexual desires that sort of are consuming and overwhelming for your heart, get married. It's not that difficult. Find another Christian and get married, mm-hmm. right? That's, well, that's what Paul's saying here. Singleness is great. There's a lot of great opportunities, but it's not worth feeling like you're dying inside every single day of your life because you don't have somebody, okay? Now, I think one of the other areas that the church has done a great harm is that sex has historically in the church been viewed like it is only for procreation, right? There is no other acceptable purpose beyond having babies for which people have sex. And so I just wanted to bring out, and MacArthur outlined these, but six different reasons that scripture has um, for having sex. Genesis 1.28, procreation. We'll start there. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. First Peter 3, 7, not only procreation, but also provision. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Partnership, Genesis two eighteen. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. We don't have these two read, but it's also a picture of the gospel, and that would be out of Ephesians 5. 1 Corinthians 7, 2, what does it say? If you're struggling with singleness, get married. Why? Marriage is helpful for purity. It gives a sexual outlet. That is one of its designs, is to give a place where God allows sex to occur. And then finally, Pleasure, Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. First Corinthians um, 7, 4 through 6. Let's go ahead and move on here. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So this is, what's, this is incredible to me. Not, singleness was getting so elevated in the Corinthian church that there were married people who said, hey, we should stop having sex because it's more spiritual. And Paul's like, no, okay, all right, uh, okay. Singleness is good, but singleness is not for married people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that sounds obvi- obvious, but this is what the culture was. Like, sex is bad, sex is bad. And married couples were like, oh, I want to be spiritual. I want to serve the Lord. 
And so they're like, we'll stop having sex then. And Paul's like, oh, help. Uh, no. Uh, I, I would love to see the attitude he writes some of these with. I'd pay, I'd pay so much money to see his face. Um, but and while I could get into so much technical sort of expository things here, this one, these like three verses are the three most influential verses in the Bible for me in how I view sex and how I apply to every other sexual ethical question. Um, I have found no other verses in the Bible that are more far-reaching than these three. And the, if, I can, if I can give like two little phrases out of them, the principle is mutuality. Mutuality is the number one principle that Paul teaches regarding sex. And if I had to put it in two words instead of one, it would be mutual ownership. Mutual ownership. This principle is so, so important. You do not belong to yourself. You do not own you. You do not own your own body. I think that hilariously almost, the most equity and evenness between men and women in terms of gender role is found in the bedroom, which is almost ironic considering how culture and history has played out. Because nowhere else in scripture do you see such equality between men and women. Women own men's body just as much as men own women's in marriage. And I think that this text has often been slanted towards the, towards the male side, right? Like you have the authority over the woman. But what is so important to grasp here is the principle of mutuality. There is mutual ownership, equal both ways. The man owns the woman's body and the woman owns the man's. Which, which sounds really harsh, but we love like sayings like, you are mine and I am yours. But then this really takes it down to some very brass tacks that get a little intimidating to say, I don't own my body. Somebody else owns my body, which runs against the entire grain of our modern mind. To have somebody else owning us is really, really foreign. So yes, um, men are, are very prone to sort of crushing um, and being authoritarian, but Paul rules this out very quickly because women own men in exactly the same way. So what logically follows from this to me, and I think this is a very fair inference, is that sex should be a selfless act, okay? Sex should be a selfless act because your focus as a person is on who? Whose body do you own? Yours or theirs? Theirs. So your concern is for their body and their concern is for who? You. And so sex becomes very selfless when you start thinking of it this way because you are concerned not inwardly but outwardly towards them and they likewise are concerned for your own well-being. Thus your focus should be on serving and satisfying your spouse's desires, not your own. Which starts to answer a lot of these practical questions I'm going to dive into and I hope you see how I'm laying this groundwork. The principle of mutual ownership lends to two conclusions. One, sex is to be a selfless act. And from that selfless act, what that means is you are designed to serve and to satisfy your spouse, to satisfy their sexual out need for a sexual outlet and to bring them great pleasure. So I have an outline of three terms that I want to spend the rest of our time on here tonight. And, and hopefully you'll see, see how these play into the, the sort of groundwork that I'm building here. 
The three words are deprivation, desires, and delights. Deprivation, desires, and delights. And this is admittedly where I'm sort of springboarding off of these texts and sort of building out of this framework. But um, let's go ahead and start with um, deprivation. And this may be an odd place to start, but I think it's one of the most um, overlooked in dating and will rear its ugly head back in marriage. The dating version of this, in, in a pure sense, of course, is the silent treatment, okay? The silent treatment is always focused on depriving the other person and making them desperate by removing yourself from their life to show you how valuable you are. And the same is going to be true in marriage. Whether you are angry with your spouse or you're not angry, you've just been married for a substantial amount of time now and the bells and the whistles and the fireworks are fading, there is an issue that comes with deprivation. Paul talks about this very, very directly when he says that do not deprive your spouse. And why is that? Why does he say that that's the case? He gives two reasons in that text. Number one, if you choose to deprive your spouse of sex, then you are robbing them because, and stealing from them because you're taking something that doesn't belong to you. Because who does your body belong to? Does it belong to you? No, it belongs to your spouse. But number two, the second reason that he gives is for, is for, um, for temptation from Satan. And this one's very interesting because there are times in, in the Old Testament, uh, Exodus chapter 9, Joel chapter 2, Zechariah 12, where God instructs the people to stop having sex because something very spiritually important is happening. And so that's what Paul is saying, is there may come a time when there's something very spiritually important and very spiritually like waiting and it just removes that sexual desire and you both say, hey, we really need to pray about this and we need to go forward together. And he says, okay, that's fine. Have a set time. Why? Why does he say that? What's the, what's the scripture say? What's the reason that Paul says, have a set time that you've agreed upon? What's the reason for that of 1 Corinthians? So that the devil doesn't tempt you. And I think the same is very true. If you choose to withhold yourself from your spouse because, you know, the emotions of it are gone or you're angry with them, so I'm going to show them and not give them sex tonight, right? Like that is going to open up room for temptation from Satan. Where God provides a door for positive and appropriate sexual outlet, Satan will also provide that door as well, but into something that is inappropriate. Satan wants to take all those desires and give you an opportunity to express them inappropriately. And so that is why we can't go about depriving each other in marriage. We need to have this idea that we need to be coming together in marriage in a consistent fashion that doesn't rob our spouse. If you love your spouse and want to protect them from temptation, you will not deprive them of what is theirs. And don't be too proud to think that you could fall into this temptation, right? Like, I think in some sense it's hard for us to imagine, right? Like, I'm married. I, I have the availability of having sex. Why would I ever be tempted to go outside of it? If you're frustrated 
Sproul puts it this way, right? Like my wife is a 10 in this area and a seven in this area and a two in this area. What the human tendency is to do is to see someone outside of your marriage in that one area where your wife is a two and say, wow, that person's a 10. I've really been lacking in that one area. And you're gravitating towards this one area where you feel like your relationship is lacking. And so there is that sense in which Satan does a masterful job at tempting people who are depriving each other. And so if you, if you want a sentence to remember, and this is, this is just sort of a catchy way for me, don't use your body as a bargaining chip. Don't use your body as a bargaining chip. Quid pro quo, right? Like this for that. I'll give you this. I'll give you sex. I'll give you this act if you will do this for me. I, it's, it is a very direct form of manipulation. Don't manipulate your spouse with your body. Seems super elementary right now until you're angry and you want something and the one thing that they want in return is sex. So the mind says, ah, I can make a deal right here. I'll give you this if you'll give me this in return. Don't do it. You're opening yourself and them up for temptation and you're also committing robbery, committing robbery. So that's all for deprivation. Let's go ahead and move on to desires, desires. Now this is a little bit, probably the most lengthy section. And wow, there's so much to unpack in, in terms of sexual desires. So very much. And the first place that I want to start is your own sexual desires. <clears throat> this is so multifaceted because it is important. The very first step in order to having proper desires in marriage is being able to have the emotional intelligence to have your own sexual desires. It is important to learn and explore numerous, there's so many non-pornographic opportunities and options for how to learn about sex, okay? There, there are great resources out there. But the very first thing that I want you to focus on is developing your own sexual desires, which may seem a little counterintuitive. Why would I say this, why? If sex is to be somewhere that you basically are flip-flopping desires, like my job is to care for my spouse's desires and their job is to care for me, what that means, if you want your spouse to be able to care for your desires is that you need to have them, right? Otherwise things start to feel lopsided very quickly because, and this is where the terms like are thrown around like the high desire partner and the low desire partner because one partner has all these desires and the other one doesn't. And what that, what that means is one partner always feels like they're pouring out and one partner always feels like they're pouring in. And the person like on the lower desire side may be like, I, I'm not trying to be mean. I just don't want anything, right? And if you struggle with having no sexual desires, that may be a really good indication that you shouldn't get married because that's what it means to have the gift of singleness is you don't have sexual desires, okay? If you don't have sexual desires, consider that our society may be pushing you in a way to think, oh, I have to get married, I have to get married. If you don't have any desire, don't, that's all. Just don't, don't get married, don't have sex. So my first, but, but there are, I think in our community especially, there are people who genuinely do have a yearning for sex but they've been so repressed their entire life and their entire childhood that they don't know what that means to be able to even think on those emotions, to be able to express that is very repressed. 
And so I, I think we see a lot of people who have desires but don't even have the emotional intelligence to process what it means to have desires. And so the very number one reason that I want you to work on having desires, catch this, is so that you can forget about them. That's why I want you to have desires, is so that you can try to never really think about them for yourself ever again. Why? Because who's supposed to care for your list of desires? Your spouse, right? So here's how it's supposed to go, right? You develop your desires, you have these desires, you communicate them to your spouse, and the process happens the other way as well. And then suddenly, I'm caring for my spouse's desires and they're caring for mine. Could I care for my own and them look out for theirs? Yes, but what does that lack? That lacks any sense that produces intimacy and selflessness because that means you're focused inward. And there are a lot of negative things that come with being focused inward. So sex then becomes a selfless and intimacy producing as your spouse intensely pursues what you have communicated to them will make them happy. Your spouse, not you, is focused on helping you achieve the greatest amount of pleasure and satisfaction that is humanly possible. But that means that, number one, you have to have desires for them to help work with you on. And number two, that means you have to actually communicate those desires. Both of which, in our little social circles, are profoundly difficult. If you've had repressed thoughts your entire life, it suddenly becomes very difficult to say, I want this in your own mind. And if it's difficult in your own mind, what's even harder is to look somebody in the eyes and say, I want this. That's really intimidating. That's really intimidating. Why? Why do you guys think it's so intimidating? I have some answers, but I think it's so obvious. Why is it so intimidating to say, I want fill in the blank, sexual act or desire? Rejection. Rejection. Number one. What's number, what's parallel but number two to me? Since you clearly know what I'm thinking. No. <laughs> Give me, throw out some more stuff, sorry. Judgment? Like, whoa, that's weird. Exactly. I think those two are the two biggest ones. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think, I think those are the two biggest ones. Number one, just absolute, like, so I've talked about this before and I'm trying to build this all together. Sex is the most personal thing that you will ever do, it, or it should be. It is the, it is the, uh, it is really the, the per pinnacle of what it means to say, this is who I am at the very core of my being. Do you accept me for who I am? You have seen me in all my nakedness, to go back to that first lesson. Do you accept or do you reject me? And so when you finally present, this is how I want to express the inner core, the very essence of who I am, and then someone comes down with some very rejecting tone, that hurts very badly. And beyond that, there's also the sense in which if it's not rejection, you don't want to be looked at like a creep, right? Like you've expressed the very core of who you are, and they're like, uh... <laughs> what? They, they can't even muster their disagreement. Their, their face just shrivels into this guttural, visceral reaction of, you're so weird and messed up. What is this? You know, and, and that hurts, right? Like, whenever you express your desires of any sort, like, I have this dream 
to go do blah, 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 and someone either rejects it or says, that's the dumbest thing I think I may have ever heard. What is that, what is that, what is that going to produce? It's going to produce, I never telling them anything personal ever again. And it's the same in parent-child relationships, right? In completely different areas of life, it's the same thing that you've experienced probably already in your life is I present my emotions to my parents or my desire of some sort, they crush it down and you make a mental note of saying, never opening up like that ever again. And so where do you think the vast majority of marital counseling comes from if it's not I can't muster how to communicate with my spouse because I felt rejected at some point and I've started burying things for 20 years. I've buried desires for 20 years. I have no idea how to communicate them. And then I acted on them and went off with somebody else because they were so repressed. That is what it's going to produce. And so um, one for some podcasters, some different PhD people use these <laughs> phrases. And I think they're some of the best phrases that I could, I hope these phrases ring in your ears when, when your, your spouse presents sexual desires. Language of judgment versus language of curiosity. Okay, that's a very, very important thing to keep in mind. Language of judgment or language of curiosity. Your spouse asks about engaging in some sexual act that you find odd or weird or whatever. Respond using language of curiosity instead of language and judgment. If your face, cur and nonverbals may be even more powerful, if your face just curls up into some, like, what? Reaction, that's going to be, like, the spouse is going to be very attuned to every reaction that they're pulling in. You need to control your face. You need to control your words. It's very important because they're going to be picking up on these things. And so how, how, do, how should you respond? Instead of saying like, what? No, don't condemn them or chide them or ridicule them. I want you to embrace a servant's mindset and respond with language that is focused on exploration and curiosity. More something like, okay, why is it that you find that arousing? What is it that we can do together to help satisfy that desire that you have? Um, or something, or something. if it's something that you find very challenging to accept, I would rather you approach it something like this. I'll be honest with you and say that this is a really difficult thing for me, but I am yours and you are mine and I live to serve you. Let's work on finding some way to work through this and compromise because we belong to each other. That has a much better ring to it and a much less self-centered, like, hey, it's, it's, this is challenging. But if this is what you want, I, it's not my body. I'm yours and you're mine. And let's compromise on that. This, let's work through this. Let's, let's build up to this. Let's talk about this. Instead of just saying, no, nope, I do not. I don't do that. Mm -mm, nope, that is not okay. You know, that, that is a very hard wall. That is language of judgment. And I want to encourage you to think language of curiosity, facial expressions of curiosity and exploration not hard no's. Hard no's are very difficult relational things to get over because there is no way back from saying that you thought you were a creep, right? There's just no way. You don't come back from that, not for a long time and without a lot of wounds. And so I'd encourage you right from the get-go, start with more openness and questions instead of dogma on how you respond. So, I think what this naturally leads to, 
I, inevitably, naturally leads to is if I'm focused on my spouse's desires and, and they're focused on mine and I'm supposed to be focused on sexual, sexual exploration, I think the next question is what is okay to be done in marriage in terms of sexual acts? Like what's okay? What's, is there stuff that's wrong to do? Is there, what, like what boundaries do we have? And so I wanna spend a little bit of time answering that question. This is sort of where I, I have to get down to a little bit more brass tacks uh, and sort of nitty gritty sort of conversation on what is okay and what isn't. Um, because these are pertinent questions and I think based on the questions that I've already seen rolling in, in the survey, these are the questions that people wanna know. Is there things that are off limits in marriage? Like, am I allowed to do this? Am I not allowed to do this? And so let's start addressing that question. I'm gonna give some really vague answers and you're gonna love it. But, but hopefully it can get the ball rolling. And then as you ask these questions that you have in your own mind, again, you can take the principles that I'm giving you and answer them a little bit more efficiently yourself. Hebrews 13.4 is the verse that I turn to on what is okay within marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Who is God saying he will judge? What is sexually impure? Things that are done outside of marriage. What is held as pure? The marriage bed, right? Pure and undefiled. It is a very generic open term without much prohibition whatsoever at all. And so what I think you will find is that marriage is to be, all over scripture, marriage is to be free from sexual immorality outside of the marital union, but scripture does not seem to place prohibitions on what is done within marriage. And, I, and so I would submit to you three principles, three guiding principles to determine if some sexual act is acceptable within the marital union. Okay, I think these three will be really helpful and really vague and, and vagueness can be frustrating or it can be freeing, okay? And what you're gonna find is that there's classic to scripture and to Paul, there's not a list of to-dos and not to-dos. There are general principles of the heart that you must work out and apply in real life, okay? So number one, and we've already been here, this is review. First, is it mutual? If you are forcing your spouse or coercing them in some way, then it is wrong because you are not focused on them above yourself. That is selfish, it is not focused on mutualness, self-sacrifice, and development of intimacy, it is coercion. So my first question is, is it mutual? Second, is, let me find it here. Um, second, is it loving? And the first one really answers a lot of questions regarding abuse and manipulation if you start to think about how mutuality is applied, by the way. But second, is it loving? Is it loving is the second question that I want you to consider. Um, does this sexual act result in the harm of my spouse even if they say that they desire it? Okay. Um, some things um, within the realm of uh, BDSM, bondage, discipline, sadism, masochism, are going to be inherently dangerous and bad for your spouse. So no, it is not loving. Like there are so many things regarding like choking people out during sex, things get very murderous and very violent. That is not loving, okay? Even, even if someone's twisted enough in their mind to say, I want that, there's a sense of responsibility as the other partner to say, that's not, that's not good. Like you, you're in danger. You're actually in physical danger here. That's not loving, okay? So 
that's a very vague thing. I'm not saying that all things, and this is one of the questions we've already had roll in is regarding BDSM. I'm not saying that everything that anyone has ever done in that realm is wrong. What I'm trying to say is that if it's dangerous and hazardous to their well-being, love, the principle of love generally says, how can I do things that are in my spouse's well-being? Okay, and so you must consider, is it mutual? Is this producing intimacy and togetherness as I serve my spouse and they serve me? And two, is it loving? Do, is this actually beneficial for them? And then third, I think this, is, uh, this also works with some of the fantasy items as well. Um, does it play pretend sin? Does it play pretend sin? Um, I've heard, and this comes from various sources, that um, uh, one, one couple was talking about online that I've, like one, one of the spouses liked to um, sort of enact rape within their marriage. Or the, another one, they like to sort of imagine that they were picking up some stranger at a bar, okay? And it's their wife, but they're intentionally dwelling on something that is sinful, okay? We never in any other area of life say, yeah, that's cool, uh, envision sin, I'm fine with that. Like nowhere in scripture is the mental envisionment of sin okay? so long as you're doing it in a way that isn't externally sin. And so I think that's a very valid principle to extend here is that that's a, a really good line to draw in terms of fantasies and questions regarding role play and stuff that inevitably come up is, is it mutual, is it loving? And then is it, is it really trying to say, I have this sinful desire in me, but there's no good way for me to enact it and still feel good about myself as a Christian, so can we do this together? That's a very twisted way, one that reveals sinful intention cloaked over in this marriage like is okay area. And so don't play pretend sin. That's the, that's the third one, whether it's rape or uh, adultery or fornicate, you know, don't play pretend sin. Or, and, and that's speaking within the marriage. I think it's obvious don't bring in other sexual partners within marriage, like threesomes, pornography, these things get brought into marriage are very detrimental. I'm leaving that out of the discussion. I hope that that's relatively common knowledge <laughs> in this group, but I figure I'll cover my bases there. So I hope those three are helpful because the principle of mutuality and the principle of love guide what is okay. Scripture does not provide a list of what is okay to do and what isn't. And what is not said in Scripture, that's a Christian liberty issue, okay? And so with that, what I want you to do is I want you to stop building walls of taboos and things that are you tick in your mind as that's unholy and unsanctified. And I want you to replace it with start developing a curiosity together we explore type mindset. Marriage is a place of freedom. Sex is an embodiment of creativity and exploration where there was nothing but restriction beforehand, right? Singleness is a place of restriction and the covenant of marriage is a place of freedom where you get to express all those desires that have been pent up for your entire life. That's why Paul is saying, you have all these desires, great. Go to the, the promised land of sexual desire where God has given you to express yourself. And so what happens is that one partner starts to develop this list of this is okay and this is unsanctified and unholy. And when the other person has their list of what is okay and what isn't okay, and you bring those together and they conflict, it usually does not produce uh, 
<laughs> healthy marriages. Let's just say that, right? It doesn't produce anything but tension. And so what is a better approach and more prudent in my expectation is to work on deconstructing your lists entirely and then say, this is what I would desire to explore and this is what I would desire to learn about. Give that to your spouse and forget about it because it's now their job and you do the same. And that is a whole lot more selfless because focus, focusing on achieving their greatest satisfaction possible instead of focusing on what you think is okay and what isn't okay is what is selfless. As soon as you start saying, I'm okay with this, I'm not okay with this. I'm okay with this, I'm not okay with this. Who is that talking to and who is that focusing on? Yourself. And sex is always designed to be an act of great service and love to your spouse. And so what you should be focused on is serving them, serving them. If scripture does not command one way or the other, it's a preference. And if it's a preference, then it's your preferences. And your, your spouse should be the one who's worried about your preferences, not you. If it's a preference, then let it be a preference and let your spouse worry about it for you, okay? This is so similar to matters of conscience, right? This is um, that Paul talked about in terms of some observe religious days, some don't. Does this mean that you have to explore and try everything that there is to try? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, exploration for the, ex, for the sake of exploration itself is dumb. That's a dumb aim because the aim is always to promote the greatest satisfaction and pleasure in your spouse. There's no holiness in exploring for the sake of exploring. It's always for the sake of your spouse. And say you try something, and as you're going through, or afterwards, you say, you know what, you know, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't that enjoyable for us. Okay, great, congrats. You figured out one thing that you guys don't like together, right? And then on the other hand, you may find, wow, that was way more enjoyable than I ever could have expected. And I never would have done it if I had kept that list of rules that I wanted to operate by. I think that's a very fair comment is to say that, this is, a, this is a dumb adage in some sense, but at least don't knock it until you've tried it together and talked about it and, and communicated. Don't just go in with your list of things that you've already decided on without ever talking to them. You're cool with and not cool with it. It won't be good because, um, so like, let's say that you're in a, in a situation where something wasn't, wasn't that great. It wasn't that enjoyable. A really great way to approach it is saying something like, this is nothing against you personally at all, but that one just wasn't one of my personal favorites. How was it for you, right? It's, it's ending with the important part, them. How was it for you? I'm gonna be honest with my feelings and say, no, that wasn't, that wasn't great for me, but I'm concerned about you too. And so the, you see this balance here is that you have to have the sexual and emotional intelligence to have your own desires, have your own thoughts, and then flip-flop, communicate those with each other. Um, in the same vein, uh, together, you should decide what terms you're going to use when you refer to certain sexual acts and to sexual organs. Some people prefer very formal terminology. Some people prefer more slang terminology. And if you grew up one certain way and these words were okay and these ones were okay in this household, and then you get together and you're like, whoa, okay, why are you, 
that's weird. Why, why are you talking about it like that? And you're like, talking about it like what? It's just how we talk about it. And you're like, no, it's not. And, and so there's this, you have to decide on the language in which you're going to refer to things. If you're speaking different vocabulary, one that's inherently offensive, then it's going to be a rough conversation because you don't understand how the other person's communicating. Um, I, I thought of this, um, like how many of you are even familiar with the terms um, cunnilingus and fellatio, fellatio? Okay, right? That's a very formal terminology, a very scientific terminology for certain sexual acts. And so let's say somebody comes, and, comes to you and says, yeah, um, fellatio, I'm, I'm very interested in fellatio. And you're like, what? <laughs> it's not gonna mean anything. But let's say somebody finds the word fellatio really offensive. You're like, okay, all right, what are you, that's really offensive, why do you just, why do you use that word like that? And so you may think you prefer formal terminology, but I've just used some formal terminology which you've never even heard of, okay? So don't think, oh, I prefer formal terminology because I'm a better person than you, right? Like, there's, there has to be some sort of common language that you agree on and are both comfortable with. It turns out that scientific terminology isn't always the most romantic. Uh, I'm just, you know, like, interdigitating does not have the same as I want to hold your hand, right? Like, it just, it, it, it does. Sometimes it does. So I just encourage you that just because it's formal or just because it's slang, words are just words, in, particularly in context of one relationship that is very private, words have whatever meaning you assign to them. And if you both understand a word in a common way, then you're off to a great, great start because uh, you're communicating in the same language. Okay, I know I'm sort of hodgepodging things together here, but finally, we're into a point where we're communicating and we're using the same language. And now we're agreeing with the Bible and it says, don't stop having sex. And so the question is, great, how often should we have sex? Paul doesn't say. And there he goes again saying, don't stop having sex. Like, you should pray all the time. Thanks, Paul. What does that mean? So I, I just, one of, the, one of the best things that I came across in studying this, and I realized I'd been approaching this wrong as well, is number one, the first question is, how often does your spouse desire it? That, that has to be the primary concern because it's again, focused outward. But frequency is going to ebb and flow throughout different stages of life. Don't focus on getting a quota of sex for the week. That's a horrible way to go about it. Although I will say from, yeah, don't, it's just like your quiet time, we're just checking off the box, right? Um, although I will say that from numerous different sources, I've heard that sex appointments become a very practical thing for some married couples. Like, hey, this is a time that we're gonna take to just be together so that it doesn't just get slipped and running the kids to practice and doing this and that and the other. We, we, book, we book time to where we have intimacy. And it may sound unromantic, but if you are saying, I'm gonna check out of everything else and tune in in this moment, it can be very, very practical. That's just bonus content, but back to frequency. Um, frequency is going to ebb and flow. Um, here's, here's something that's an amazing thought to me. Frequency is the thermometer, not the thermostat. Pleasure is the thermostat. It's an odd thought. Frequency is the thermometer and pleasure is the thermostat. If you're focused on frequency, you're focused on the wrong thing. What you should be focused on is making it the most pleasurable experience for your spouse possible, because if it's truly pleasurable, guess what's gonna increase? 
sex and frequency because you both want it and you both enjoy it. The focus should be on how can I make this pleasurable because frequency will work itself out if you dial the temperature of pleasure correctly. Okay, I think that's a very healthy way to approach it. So when I speak of um, sexual exploration in terms or sexual terminology in terms of frequency, what is the primary answer to all of these questions that I'm presenting? How can I best serve and love my spouse? How can I obey God's command to have sex and absolutely maximize my partner's pleasure? That's the principle. When each individual is more focused on, other, on the other partner than themselves, insecurities and conflicts disappear for sex has become selfless. Insecurities are all about who? Me. Me, me, me. I'm scared what I look like and how I perform and how I do this. Insecurities melt when your mind is consumed with the other person. Okay? And, and with that, I will say, and this is very much like um, God's greatest glory is my greatest joy type things. Focusing on your partner's highest pleasure doesn't mean it's to the exclusion of your own pleasure, right? Those hopefully, intimate, intimacy, it becomes one and the same end. Your, your spouse's and your greatest pleasure hopefully merge over time as you learn each other to become the highest and greatest good together. Finally, number three, and this, I hope that these points are connecting and you're seeing why I've ordered it this way. There are some things that I felt like I needed to get in and this was the section to do it. The third point is delights. So don't deprive um, desires, have your own and communicate them well and focus on the spouses, but then delights, delights. Sex within marriage absolutely has a great number of delights to be enjoyed. enjoyed. Um, this is a very difficult concept to place into words. And I, I want sex exploration um, and sex and all of its to cre uh, creativity and ingenuity to be a delight. When we speak of sexual exploration and, and these various terms, you know, people have all these questions, you know, is oral sex okay? Is um, our sex toys okay? Are different positions besides missionary okay? This is what I'm saying is, is to explore. There are all sorts of things to explore. But I never want you to think of sex as duty. I want you to think of it as delight. There comes a point in, in marriage, I, I, from what I hear from other folks and have researched, that you're just so busy and you have kids and there's so many things going on and you know, I'm just getting home from work and I have the laundry to do and all this stuff to do and if, uh, my husband's gonna want sex so I gotta book that in sometime tonight and I gotta get that out of the way. You know, like, there, it just becomes like another thing to check off, I got, just gotta get it done and we'll get through it. I never want that to be the case. You have to always focus on not letting sex become duty but always having it be delightful. It's understandable that it turns into duty at some times and both parties need to be aware that Different days have different emotions and different stressors, but make sure that you have an effort on both sides to make it as pleasurable as possible, as pleasurable as possible. And, and where I'm gonna jump off from here may seem strange, but the statistics indicate that this is the way that I should turn, and so that's why I'm going to do it here. Um, men, I, I start by primarily speaking to you on this, but sexual, Gratification and delight is often set up 
to your advantage more than hers, statistically speaking. Um, men, it will take intentionality to have sex to be as delightful as possible for her. Um, as I've read the, the literature and listened to podcasts, um, there's a term that's emerged called the orgasm gap, which may seem like a strange term, the orgasm gap. Um, this term highlights the fact that men achieve climax and orgasm over 90% of the time during intercourse. But women's orgasm is in the mid to low 40s with some never experiencing it at all. And that's a very distinct difference. And so why do I bring this up? This seems super random. Men, I want you to be focused on pleasuring your wife. And that's going to take time and intentionality. If I can keep it as general as I can for both men and women here, I encourage you that as you near marriage, to keep again, to keep it as general as I can, study female anatomy. It is super critical to have a, a very good working of female anatomy because unless you do, a lot of things aren't going to make sense. There are, there are, I, 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 it's so obvious that homeschool community lacks sex ed. That's all I'm going to say. Um, but there are, what? how do I say this? From a scientific perspective, there are areas with a greater density of nerve endings, and that's very important, okay? If you, if you touch the skin on your back with a two-point uh, discriminator, you're gonna have difficulty differentiating if it's one point or two. Why? Because the neural overlap of sensory area is wider. The same thing applies to sex, okay? You have greater sensation in certain areas because, for instance, in one, one part of um, one part of female anatomy, there's over 8,000 nerve endings within like one square inch or something. That's a lot of nerve endings for one area. That area is going to be more important in sex than other areas. And men, in order to be skilled at pleasuring the woman, you have to understand these things. And so as you get into premarital counseling, unfortunately, I don't think anatomy is often addressed because it's almost assumed. And don't make assumptions like that. You need to study. Um, to understand. Um, you really do need to study. And so as you study anatomy, studying sex also, like studying sex as a broad topic, mingles with that better. And when you start studying sex and anatomy better together, um, you may suddenly understand that there are th that things that you thought were really weird beforehand and different sexual acts and different sexual positions and all these sort of things that were really weird in your mind, when you start studying anatomy, you understand why people do it. Anatomy, uh, anatomical considerations often drive sexual exploration. I know I'm keeping it very vague here, but people engage in different types of sexual acts because there are different anatomical considerations which are very important to understand. And so I know I'm being very broad, but as you go through the premarital counseling process, I would really encourage you to, to study in somewhat of an academic sense, to, to understand what it is that you're actually engaging in. Um, again, to be as vague as possible, the literature indicates that some of the most traditional sexual positions and acts are actually the least likely to result in climax and orgasm for both genders. Which, if you have a very narrow-minded view of what sex is, and these two things are okay because they're the most um, vanilla, if you will, what you may end up doing is boxing yourself into areas that you don't actually want to be in. And so for, for the men, I'm, I'm saying this because sexual exploration can be a very self-sacrificing thing to the woman. 
but also it's important for the woman to study these things, particularly if you grew up in very conservative circles. And by the way, in the literature, there is um, there are connections between the taboos that you grew up with and your sexual performance. Um, those are those are real correlations that I've seen in the literature, because things that seem weird to you, and this is this is one of the most important things to understand in term in terms of men men in terms of helping to. Um, for your for your wife to have as much pleasure as possible is that the mental aspect is often far more important for women than it is for men, and so if a woman is struggling with um, with being weirded out and you know I have my list of things and this I'm feeling morally conflicted or grossed out or even in the sense of my mind is focused on the fact that there's laundry that needs to get done and I'm getting behind on stuff, then then it becomes very difficult for women to engage fully in that sexual act. It becomes very difficult. And so it's very important for both, both genders to learn to relax and to breathe and to engage through different sexual acts and different positions. And, and you know, and that's, that's what I'm saying. Like going back to those questions of, are sex toys okay? Is oral sex okay? Are different positions okay? All of these questions can be answered through mutuality, through love, through these principles, and then you start to look at the practical purpose of anatomically, what is it about this that people are attracted to? And why is this helpful? How can, how can I help to clear my mind so that I can sink in and actually enjoy the moment instead of being so preoccupied with my concerns internally and moral contraindications to engaging in this that I can't actually enjoy what we're doing? Sexual exploration is critical then because if you box yourself into these two things that are the only things that you do, you may never experience profound sexual pleasure that you're missing because you've never, you've always thought it's too weird to even look at it and to even try. And so there is so much out there that if you're willing to relax emotionally, it may result in something better than you could have ever imagined, but you've, you've pushed it off because you were never even willing to try. And it may not, but experience together and learn. That's part of the process is to learn what is enjoyable? What isn't? That's the whole thing. And so um, one, one phrase that I picked up from a podcast, um, I think it's a, appropriate for men and for women both. This goes in terms of, um, in terms of foreplay, why foreplay is so, so important in terms of um, marriage and sexual activity. This goes in terms of chore play, if you are into the podcasting world at all. Foreplay and chore play, those are two terms that get thrown around. Men doing chores for their wife to try to set up the mood and then she just ends up going to sleep because you finally did chores around the house. You know, <laughs> Things like this, foreplay and chore play. Why? Because, and this is a phrase that I picked up, her head must be able to relax and turn off before her body is able to be turned on. If you're stuck in, I don't know if this is okay. This feels really weird. I'm kind of grossed out by this. I got to get the kids home from practice. You've missed it. You've ruined it. You've ruined the moment, okay? You got to be able to set those things out of your mind and enjoy. And I think that that is going to be one of the most difficult things for people in this room, which is why I hesitate on this point and park here for just a moment. So marriage is a place, um, for those of you that were in Fasantos, to help each other. And by helping each other, I don't just mean to paint houses together. 
Thank you, Aaron Patton. You're still living on in my memory. Some of you have asked me um, to include a Princess Bride reference, um, which I have notably failed to do. Nathan offered me $5 out of the $10 bet, um, but Lindsay offered me 10 of $10, oh. and so I find it entirely inconceivable that you guys would even try to force me to get a reference in here at all. Um, so um, I really do pray that these principles will guide your marriage and pleasure and satisfaction will be yours that you didn't even know was possible because you took the time um, to explore and you took your list and deconstructed it and replaced it with your spouse's desires and explored that. Um, I, ah, man, I, again, these are the questions that I don't know how hard to probe into and, and to explore because there are literally like, you know, some, some of the PhD people give like, on average, people require 20, min 20 minutes of this type of activity prior to engaging in sex. And that's like, wow, wow, that's way more than you would have ever expected, right? Like, there's like, you know, just getting in quickly, doing it and being done doesn't always work to promote the greatest pleasure, right? There needs to be buildup and sexual tension built and all sorts of incredible things to study. And there are like minutes, like scientifically designed, like this is the amount of time that, uh, you know, this is required for and various different things. There are so many different sexual games that are innocent. And there are like, there's a Christian app that I know of, they do a great job of, they were really frustrated with the fact that all that they could find was raunchy stuff out there. And so they designed a platform for different sexual ideas for couples and different things to explore that didn't have pornographic ties to it so that they could feel like I can be a Christian and have this in my marriage. Various different things. There are so many different things to explore as you get closer to marriage and it's just been a challenge to really know what to include. So um, there are questions that we all have and I really do hate the fact that Christians turn more to Google and gotquestions.com and secular sources because they feel so uncomfortable coming to the church and people in the church to ask real questions. And so accordingly, I've provided time and a link to an entirely anonymous form uh, to ask any questions that you want about uh, sex and marriage that your heart burns to know. Um, more than likely, you're not alone. Um, you're not. Everyone has questions regarding, is this act okay within marriage? Is it okay to think this certain way? Is it okay to incorporate this sexual uh, toy or pleasure item? Or is it okay to try these different things? Or how do I do this? What about sexual games? All these different questions that people have and ponder in their mind and then privately, you know, open incognito, go to gotquestions.com and then search, you know, these sort of things. Uh, I, I, want, I want it to be able to be something that we discuss in the church in an appropriate sense that is real and it recognizes that everyone's having these questions. And so I know we have different levels. The questions that I'm seeing roll in say some people have sexual understanding that's at this level up here and have really kind of complicated questions. And then I know that there's some people down here who say I have really basic questions about sex, sexuality and it's, it is tough because there's a fine line when teaching homeschoolers between sex ed and biblical education, right? But um, I hope that we can get this wider, wide range of questions and there's no guilt or judgment in being honest about asking our questions. And, and really in this area, there are dumb questions in life, um, but if your home was not one that was forthright about sex and open and communicative, then why should you know, right? If you've done a good job of remaining pure and not getting into things that you shouldn't, 
then why would you have any reason to have any knowledge? So hopefully we can answer these, some, of, some of these questions um, inside of the church instead of, out of outside of it. And next week, I'm going to take some time to sort of go through these questions and answer them for you. So until then, continue transforming your mind to appreciate the fact that sex is God's gift of art, creativity, love, freedom, and intimacy to mankind. So two more things and then we'll be out of here. Um, number one, I have intentionally left a couple extra minutes here so that we can, you can go back to the people that you were with, talk about it, and submit a question into that Google form. I would love to, whatever questions have been prompted out of tonight's lessons, things that were unclear, drop that question in there. However, there is one final exercise that I have debated since 2019. Do it. When, when we went through this. And it's going to be very uncomfortable. We're going to go around every single individual in this room, every single individual, one at a time, is going, I, I want you to verbally say, because it's, this is the first step to being able to talk about sex, is to say the word. I want you to say, sex is good. That's all I want you to say. We're going to go around the room and say, sex is good. That's all I want you to say. It's not that big a deal, right? Sex. Right? Josh, you want to start us off? Sex is good. 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 Stop thinking it's bad. Okay, very good. Thank you, guys. Does everyone know where to access the survey? Go to Joanna's uh, most recent band post, a couple posts back, and you can just open it right up and ask whatever questions. Please ask questions. If you have questions, ask them, because that's part of what next week is going to be dedicated to answering. And additionally, I know oh, we, we talked a little bit about anatomy stuff. If you have anatomy questions, please ask them. Yep. Um, and I don't know if that's something that we'll address with everyone next week, but it will be good for us to know that. And like, I will offer up myself like girls, if you have anatomy questions, I've studied anatomy, I've seen many naked people, okay? You can ask the questions about it and I will talk to you. Guys, you can talk to Sam about that. Um, and just like physiology and kind of how things work if you have questions, please don't hesitate. Obviously, if you have married people that you can go to and you feel comfortable with that, that's totally fine. But if you don't, we are here as a resource if you just want to kind of chat about how things work, so. All right, thank you very much. Partner up, talk to somebody. We got some a little bit extra time here. Bye, Aiden. So. Bye, Hayden. Bye. Wait, you didn't say it. Hayden, you didn't say sex is good. Hayden, here. Yeah, do it.